And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Mark Greeny back to the program today. Mark has had several number one New York Times bestsellers. He co-wrote several years with Tom Clancy, and for his estate, several years after Mr. Clancy's passing, for a total of seven novels. Last year, he published Red Metal, co-written with recently retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Rip Rawlings. But listeners of Book Talk know Mark best for his best-selling Gray Man thriller series, starring erstwhile CIA operator Court Gentry. Today we'll be discussing the ninth installment of the series, One Minute Out. Mark, as the book opens up, we meet Serbian war criminal Ratko Babic, and Court Gentry is going to give him what he deserves. Yeah, I've been excited about writing this book for a while because I had this super general idea, which was the germination for the whole book, that Court is on a mission of revenge for something that happened a long time ago that nobody's thinking about. Obviously, some people are thinking about it that lost loved ones, but this guy is a Serbian war criminal, as you said, and Court feels like he you know, deserves righteous justice, extrajudicial assassination. So he goes to do that, and then the second order effects and the third order effects of what he saw as a righteous mission is what propels the rest of the book. Sometimes you have kind of like, he's on a different assignment, then you transition into the main plot. Exactly. But this is the plot all the way through the book. Right. He finds out within 15 pages of something going on, we'll get into, I'm sure, and that sets his course. But he had to be in that position to discover it in the first place. And I studied the uh, Bosnian Civil War a lot. I actually wrote a book about it that was never published, fiction, but... Rotko Mladic is who is, this is based off of. I'm sure you yeah, then picked I'll, up on that. I also uh, remember the name Milan Babic as well. Yeah, there were Babic and Nedic, and I did research over there in Bosnia and realized very quickly that my names that I picked out, this was early as I was writing the book, were all wrong because a, a Croatian can tell that Nedic is a Croatian name and Babic is a Serbian name and something else that seems the same to me is a um, Bosnian Muslim name. So it's a very fractured society that's not that far apart in other ways. And so I was careful with the names. Hopefully I got it right. I'll find out on release day if I get an email <laughs> that, that, I, that one of the Balkan characters' names doesn't match the origin that I say they have. It's hard to believe that that was almost 30 years ago yeah, yeah. when all that happened. Yes, uh, specifically the Srebrenica massacre, which was in July of 1995. So 25 years ago now, you know, my books are take place in the, the near future, I guess. I remember it when it was happening. I've read books on it for years and years afterwards, and it was this horrific crime in which the UN was partially responsible for what happened. But this General Ratko Mladic ordered the execution of, they think, somewhere around 8,000 men and boys. And so this guy's been on the run all this time, and court has found him and has decided that he's going to administer some justice. So how does a Serbian war criminal hide out in Bosnia and Herzegovina? You asked that question, but they did for 20 years. I mean, they didn't catch Karadzic. Radovan Karadzic, yeah. Yeah, for 20 years. And Mladic was actually captured several years ago now. I didn't want the fact that he was captured didn't slow me down for uh, putting someone just like him still out there on the run. But they managed to stay hidden for a long time. U.S. Delta Force actually captured a lot of them in the late 90s. But I'm sure there's some that have never been caught still. And so he's hiding out in Bosnia down toward the coast. And of course, Bosnia has about the smallest coastline you can have and still be called a coastline. Yeah, it's funny you know that because as I was traveling from Croatia to Bosnia, you travel from Croatia to Bosnia to Croatia back to Bosnia because you go through this very thin thing where the coast is. Because it's all the Dalmatian coast is almost 99% for Croatia. Croatia. Yeah, exactly. This is not a poison apple. 
mission. That's the CIA off the books group that Court Gentry is a part of. Mm-hmm. So who's paying him to go whack Bobich? It doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I made the decision. There's a hint that it might have been Albanian gangsters that wanted him dead. It's never really clear, and Court doesn't know. He looks at these target portfolios that are sent to him by different people around the world that think that he's the greatest assassin in the world. He throws 99% of them out because it's like, you know, executing a journalist or something like that. And then every now and then he sees this little golden ticket, this guy that he really knows deserves a visit from the gray man. And this is one of those things. So he doesn't care who is the one that's paying him. That's the one who's given him the intelligence of where this guy is. And and he's going to just home in on him. So how do his superiors at the CIA, Hanley and Brewer, feel about him doing this freelance stuff? They don't like it, obviously. A couple books back, he had said that he would do jobs off books for the agency, specifically for the deputy director of operations, be his sort of errand boy, but really an assassin. But he wanted to reserve the right to branch off and do things that he felt was right as the author of a long-running series that was effective for me, (laughs) more so than it would be effective for the CIA, um, because I want the stories to have different elements to them. So if every one of them was like he gets his assignment at the beginning and he goes and executes it for the CIA, I think it would be less interesting. This book, the CIA is involved later in the story, but at first he's very much on a solo mission. If you kind of compare it to a television long-running series, this is more of a standalone episode and not part of the larger mythology. Yes, but I've had other standalone episodes within here as well. I always like the story arc to open and close in the book that you've bought, but there also to be threads that run through the longer series as sort of something for the longtime readers or the people that go back and read the whole series. So I do want there to be things in there and you're like, oh yeah, he met in this book and then that's why they have this relationship or that's why there's some bad blood between these people. But it's not integral to each of the stories. You can pick up any one of the stories and read it without knowing the series. But when you do put in those little bits that kind of put some context in there, interacting with someone that's a longtime character in the universe, how difficult is it to keep it brief, but give enough information for the new folks. Yeah, it's a it's a challenge. There's this point in the first third of the, like the second half of the first third, so two-sixths of the way, <laughs> to, to be very generally, where I have to say, oh, the gray man is this, and he has this history or whatever, and I do it in a paragraph, but I'd rather show than tell, so you see through his actions who he is. And, and, and these interactions, I mean, there are literally like one line in there about how Zach Hightower had been his superior here and here, and then the relationship with Hightower and Court in the book, it becomes very sort of self-evident that Hightower used to be his boss and, and that sort of thing. This legend that he's acquired outside in, in the larger world of people who are called actors and assets He's starting to bristle at that a bit. He says at one point, they call me the gray man, but this stuff isn't magic. I'm low profile. I'm not invisible. Yeah, I've always wanted the series from the very beginning to be kind of the trick of it is he's the gray man, uber assassin, world's greatest assassin. But these are all monikers that have been thrown on him. And then the reader, as he's following over the gray man's shoulder, is like, this dude is winging it. He is just barely getting, you know, he's obviously very smart and he's obviously very capable and industrious, but he gets himself into corners all the time. He makes mistakes. Entire portions of some of the earlier books, he's on 
the wrong track and has to get back on the right track. So he doesn't see himself as this uber assassin. He sees himself as inevitably he's going to zig when he should have zagged and uh, he's going to get, you know, one right between the eyes. So he doesn't believe his own hype. But he must understand that he has the greatest luck in the world. Yeah, well, yeah. He did in book one. I want to say that it's like uh, over time, you have to sort of like press the envelope to do something new. But to be quite honest, within 50 pages, he was getting lucky. With, some with that many bullets flying at you. That's... Yeah, you, you were gonna, you're going to catch one. I've had people complain, you know, like you get emails saying like, well, medically, this couldn't happen when I know that it could because I did the research on it. Or And you used to work at a, a medical Yeah, he's working medical device. Yeah, and then I've, I've, you know, talked to special forces medics and, and different things specifically about if with this could this work and people all the time will be like well that's so fake because that couldn't happen i'm like that could but if you want to dial in on something that seems fake is that the bad guys just don't shoot as well as the good guys that said there are high stakes in every one of these books people that you grow to love or, or care for or are supposed to care for lose their lives so um, there is skin in the game for the characters i mean it's a series so the chances of the gray man, as I said, just catching one between the headlights and dying in one of these books is pretty small. I'm not going to be able to fool you, but I, I will fool you within the paragraphs or within the chapters saying, how's he going to get out of this? Well, that's what the books are all about, him getting himself into a corner and getting out of that. Right, exactly. Yeah. There are also a couple of people in the book who start to get under his skin, into his brain a little bit when they say, you're not doing this because you're a good guy. You're doing this because you like the thrill of the action and the kill. Right. This book is written in first person. And when you're in Court's head, yeah, just as you said, he bristles at people sort of calling him out, saying, like, nobody does what you do unwillingly or just that you can't get out of it or something like that. You know, you, you've made these conscious choices. And, and he argues back that, you know, his choices are because of the situations he's in. And then he has to sort of reflect a moment and say, you know, I'm in this situation because I came here to Bosnia with a sniper rifle and a knife, you know, to get myself into this stuff. So, uh, yeah, he has to sort of acknowledge that. And if he just would have stuck with the sniper rifle, we wouldn't have had the book. Yeah. The whole opening scene is him very frustrated with himself because he has his target in his sights at 470 meters and doesn't take the shot because he's really chapped that this guy killed 8,000 people and he's going to uh, fire a 300 blackout round or whatever and just hit the guy in the face and he'll never know what hit him and, and his life is just turned off like that. He wants to get up close and personal and have this guy feel that his breath on his neck before he uh, sticks a knife into him. And he feels like that's the only justice that makes sense. Although it's a lot more complicated to crawl across a valley unseen and sneak into a compound, but that's what he does. Because Bobich has a lot of hired help around the area. Right. And he's going to have to get past a lot of people and go into a very well-defended situation. Yeah. In, in the opening two pages, Court admits he hasn't figured this all out. He's surprised that there's as much security for this guy who's in hiding as there is. The reason there's security is because there's something else hidden in the farm other than Rodko Babich. Court doesn't piece that together before he goes in on this solo mission to assassinate the guy. But pretty soon he finds what he was not supposed to see. And he goes to Bobbitt's bedroom in the evening, and he's not there. Yeah. So he's downstairs. Yeah, he's down in the basement. Court makes his way down there and finds a large group of women who are being obvious to him. Just looking at him, they're kidnapped victims, and they're being smuggled for sex trafficking. They're in the process of being smuggled for sex trafficking. And Bobbitt is in this farm where is this way station along this thing they call the pipeline that moves these women across Europe to their 
final destinations. And Court finds Bobbich as well. So he's got Bobbich down there, and then he's about to kill him. And then he recognizes that there's a busload of women down there who have been kidnapped. We know what's going to happen to Bobbich, but after the inevitable takes place, mm-hmm. he thinks, I need to save these women. He has his code. Right. It's going to be extremely difficult right. to get them all out. But they make a decision for him that he hates. Yeah. He says, all right, there's a bus upstairs. I'm going to go for the bus. We don't have much time because there's a lot of dudes around here that will do a radio check here any second. And I need you guys to follow me, blah, blah, blah. And they are like, no, we can't go. The people who brought us here know where our families live and all this other stuff. As I researched human trafficking in general and this type of thing specifically, you see there's a whole lot of different ways that people are coerced fraud or there's different ways that people end up in this situation. Promises of immigration. Yeah, absolutely. Romance. And 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 this book deals with like one character who's basically just literally kidnapped off the street or out of a nightclub. That is less common than all the other ways where, you know, via financial hardship, someone sells their child or someone willingly goes in thinking they're going to make some money. They're promised they're going to work in a hotel in Dubai or something, and then they're shipped to a bordello in Brussels. And the women are brought there in different ways, but they all recognize that if they disappear now after the man that's been holding them has been killed, their families are going to suffer a consequence. So Court's there by himself. He has to basically make a run for it by himself and leave all these women behind, which is the antithesis of who he is as a person. Now, one woman does make a run for it, and that's Liliana Brinsana. Why is she willing to run? She was in a slightly different situation for a couple of reasons. She was actually in a room with Babich when Court comes in, when this masked assassin comes in, and she just realizes that the assassin isn't here for her, so she starts to make a run for it. She also, as unfortunately is common, you know, willingly went into sex work because of poverty and where she lived in Moldova. She doesn't have family that she's worried about. She doesn't feel that there's this collateral that can be exacted against her. And so she makes a run for it. And then Court stumbles onto her as he's escaping. And they realize they can sort of help each other. But she does have this sense that in some way she deserved it because she had worked as a sex worker before. She viewed herself as in a different situation as the other people. Absolutely. And and that's just from my reading. You know, it, it would be just heartbreaking to hear from people who were like, well, yeah, but I wasn't like kidnapped off the street. I went into this willingly. I don't know that they say they deserve it, but at the same time, I've read, you know, accounts of people that go out of their way to say that, you know, they are not as much of a victim as others. And I think that's sad when you think about it. And I just wanted to address that a little bit. Then the psychological toll that is on the people involved in this is just incredible. It, it is the brutality of it. I realized very quickly it, it's a dicey subject to talk about, obviously. Also, when you're male, it's, it's a dicey subject to talk about. And I said, you know, the respectful way to do this is, you know, my research just showed me the brutality and the cruelty and the inhumanity of a lot of this. And it reminded me of my third gray man novel. It was called Ballistic. It was about the Mexican drug wars. And as I was doing research, you know, I thought I knew a lot about it. But the more research you did, the more you just mouth dropped to the floor and said, people can be this horrible to one another. It's still hard to accept. And I was feeling the same way researching this book. And the psychological aspect of it is among the worst parts. I thought back to your second book, On Target, Mm -hmm. because Gentry is put into a position where every decision is bad. Yeah. And what do you do at that point? 
I am fascinated with stuff like that. I've realized as the series has gone on, I'm not really an answer man. I'm a question man. <laughs> and uh, I wish I had all the answers. But as I do my research, I come up with a lot of questions. And then I, I want the character to wrestle with these questions as well. And I've realized recently for the first time, I'm less concerned with the reader. Well, I'm equally concerned with the reader learning something new in the story and the hero learning something new about himself or about the world around him and something like that. And the, and the, and the reader follows along. So this was a story that the more research I did, the more I wanted to talk about it. And then you realize you can't really pull punches. You don't want to be salacious, but it's dark subject matter. In reading it, you know, of course, I was understandably very uncomfortable yeah. Uh, yeah. with what's going on. And But I thought back and I said, you know, in all of these books, there's people getting killed and murdered all over the place. But this does hit at a different soft spot in our Yeah, in our and I, I don't know what – I had exactly that experience writing it. I remember talking to my editor. It was too late to change the story because where I was in the book, and I'm like, you know, this is really tough to thread this needle of talking about this and not being gratuitous and not using anything for – shock value or cool you know th these books have to be cool and they have you know there has to be lightness and dark in them and it was a tough to take this really heavy subject matter and deal with it but i told myself look talk about what's happening the brutality of it the cruelty of it and get some people out of it so there is this fictionally you can get some satisfaction did you have any readers in the um, law enforcement and intelligence fields look at the book and kind of give you feedback on it? No, I reached out and talked to them, but it, it wasn't like um, having them read pages and give me their, their opinions. I've done that in the past, but not with this book. This book, it was more like interview somebody and say, you know, like, how does this situation work or what would you do in this situation? And I just build from there. I was careful. You know, there's a lot of things in the news about sex trafficking, obviously, the Jeffrey Epstein case and, you know, do research on that, learn a ton about it. But I wanted my story to be different because I did think it would be wrong to take real lives that have been destroyed and, you know, real evil and then just throw different names on them and then have my hero just come in and kick ass. That's not what I wanted to do. I was going to create a completely fictional story using elements of things in the real world. And I felt like that was the right way to thread that needle. Court and Liliana get off of the property and she has some intelligence that can help. She has seen a local police official yeah. who has come to the property. Right. She knows there's a police chief that has come to the property and she has seen him up close. And so she can identify him. And when court realizes he wants to turn away, he realizes he can't stop sex trafficking. He probably can't rescue these women who are, who are going to be moved instantaneously after he escapes because of that compromise. And then he finds out that Liliana, you know, has this information on what this one guy looks like. So they go to an apartment near the police station and then just do basically do a stakeout for a couple of days. And uh, this is in the town of Mostar. And while this is going on, we see that the women are relocated inside Bosnia and everyone in that area is held accountable for court gentry's assassination of Babich. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where you start to get into the larger players in the sex trafficking ring. In the book, it's called the consortium. And each person up the line needs to hold someone accountable below them. So there's that. And also the women are punished for court showing up and doing that, even though they had nothing to do with it. They're punished. And the fact that he knows they're going to be punished because he knows how evil minds work, even though he's never experienced anything like this. And he mentions that throughout the story, that this is something that all of his operations he's never come across. He 
knows that the fact that they were likely punished for his actions going to kill this Bosnian war criminal who they didn't even know he was a Bosnian war criminal. They just thought he was the old guy at the farm. He knows that that's going to hurt them, what he's done, and that makes him sort of inexorably tied to uh, their fate. It's one of the ways you gain compliance from a group of people is to promise punishment for all for the transgressions of one. Absolutely, absolutely. That keeps it down. And, and, I, and I like to address that. I mean, you know, I read World War Two books where a Nazi is assassinated in a town and the town is leveled or something like that. And so that's one of my questions that I don't have an answer to. Was it worth it? You know, and this was what's going on in Quartz Head. It's like he's done something that he thought was right. And the second order effects and third order effects are going to impact these women. They finally get close to this police chief of Mostar, and he gives up the name the Consortium. Right. And so that gives them just a little bit of information to go on from there. And it seems like a lot of people are gunning for this police chief. Who can get to him first is the plan. (laughs) Yeah, he's the one that they've determined is going to be the fall guy for it because it was his job to protect the pipeline but it wasn't in general his job. but it wasn't yeah, his job specifically the way station no but he kind of gets a bum rap but no one's going to feel sorry for him no right? not at uh, all so yeah court gets his hands on this guy before the assassins hungarian assassins are sent down by the consortium to, to kill him and, and court has to make his way through those <laughs> assassins and essentially protect the guy that he knows is a bad guy because he needs the information from him he runs across not only the hungarians but another person who is wanting to get after this police chief. Right. This is a character that, as I developed her, she had a very sort of simple part, and then I just started to think it'd be more interesting if it was more and more complex. So she's an analyst for Europol, which is like Interpol, but in the European Union. She's very untrained in field work. I mean, she's basically a a financial crimes analyst or a, you know, like a forensic accountant, essentially. But her sister has disappeared along this pipeline, and she has tracked them. She doesn't know the name of the pipeline or the name of the consortium or anything about the big picture, but she was able to track her sister from Belgrade to Bosnia, and that's when court comes across her and doesn't understand her or trust her motives because you know she's completely a fish out of water tailing a, a criminal enterprise like this. Yeah, she doesn't have any trade craft. None whatsoever, none whatsoever. And her name is Telesu Corbu. How, mm-hmm. how is that said in Romanian? Yeah, Telesu Corbu. Yeah. So she has knowledge of this organization. She didn't know it was called a consortium. Right. But she has been looking at money transfers and all this money laundering that goes around this right. topic. Yes. I, I built the consortium, the, the head of the entire operation, made his money and got his access to the criminal underworld via money laundering. And then he decided he was more interested in sex trafficking than money laundering and does both, but is running this thing. And and Talisa has, via her research, she hasn't pinned him down yet, but she's realized that there's a group of companies that are associated with one another that are involved in criminal activity. And that is, unfortunately, what brought her sister into the pipeline because her sister, who also has no tradecraft and is not even a police officer, was recruited by the sister who works for Europol to kind of infiltrate this, and it went horribly wrong. And we find out that the consortium is the biggest sex trafficking ring in the world, over $10 billion the previous year, but the real gut punch is that it's only 6% of the total. Yeah. 
I yeah. mean, even though they're the biggest, it's such a small percentage yeah, of it all. You do the research. I mean, it, it's hard to quantify the size of criminal activity because obviously no one's reporting their, their earnings, their profits and losses. But human trafficking is number three or number two criminal enterprise in the world behind drugs and maybe behind counterfeiting. And maybe in when it comes of, to money generated. Yes. Yeah, exactly. When it comes to income. And they say it's $150 billion a year industry. And that was in 2012. Might be more now. Of course, that's a wild estimate. You know, they do their best to estimate these things. But it's a, it's a massive, massive thing. Two-thirds of human trafficking involves sex trafficking. And this is something that we men just have to come to terms with and understand that it's our gender that's driving this. It's absolutely our gender that driving it. And, and I, I didn't want to get on any sort of a soapbox at all. But I mean, you can't research the Jeffrey Epstein case or many, many other cases, a lot of things in Europe and say like, wow, a vast swath of very important males just don't care or care and, and have some sort of skin in the game to not focus too much attention on this. And it's horrifying to see it. Because you see the high-level friends that Epstein had with with Trump, Dershowitz, Bill Clinton, yeah. Prince Andrew. Yeah, the former Secretary of Labor was the federal prosecutor in 2005 that gave him the sweetheart deal of all sweetheart deals. He could have been facing like 360 years in prison, and I think he spent eight months, but they let him go on work release six days a week, all day long, to a place that he built near the jail and opened up a charity because he's a billionaire. And through the charity, started funneling money to the local sheriff's department and stuff like that. So, and then that guy, Acosta, federal prosecutor, yeah, he was secretary of labor a couple years ago. But you see that all along. And, and just as an aside, as I was writing The Gray Man, my first book, I was in Geneva, Switzerland, and I just got a hotel, you know, didn't have a lot of money. I was just traveling with a backpack, trying to write a book, trying to get published. And I just got a hotel in Geneva, which everyone knows is just like a, a very posh place. You know, there's a lot of government stuff there. And my hotel that I just picked, you know, I got in there and could tell pretty quickly it was just sort of a, a haven for prostitution. And there were prostitutes on the street and all these other things. And and I would walk in towards the main part of the city over the, over the bridge at Lake Lacan. And you would see, I mean, I hate to say this, but it's true. I would just see just rows of... Uh, businessmen or government functionaries or whatever they are in their raincoats heading over to the red light district on their lunch break. I remarked about that to some people at the time, but it wasn't until I was doing this thing and going like, well, why don't they shut this down? You realize, again, it sounds like I'm on a soapbox here and the book isn't, <laughs> the book isn't that way, but it, but it does sort of inform the passion that's in the book. And you realize that, you know, a lot of very important people have a vested interest in not really shutting this sort of thing down. And Court runs across that all along the way while he's trying to get all this sussed out. He does. And when you do the research on how these women are groomed and recruited, they have all these, this terminology of how these women are trafficked. You see that most of what they call the groomers, the people that sort of prepare them for the life are female. And most of the recruiters are female. Actually, most of the recruiters are loved ones, are family or boyfriends or that sort of thing. When you drill down that far in this story, that's not the case. But many of the other women are. When I lived in Hamburg, Germany, prostitution was legal. Yeah, I think uh, it still is. But pimping is illegal. Hmm. And everyone uh, had to be kind of their own independent contractor. Right. Not, you know. And uh, but the, the Russians and the uh, Albanians, 
they, they, they were in it yeah. pretty big. And the bit of gunfights mm-hmm. that did break out in Hamburg were usually yeah. from pimping organizations. Yeah, we there at the Reaper Bond in Hamburg. Yeah, the, yeah, the Reaper yeah. Bond. Yeah. Uh, there was one day this Albanian mob thing went down and they shot a couple of storekeepers that were just sweeping the sidewalks out in wow. front of their place. And, wow. Um, also, you could tell the, the pimps in Hamburg, they were driving IROX. Wow. In yeah, Germany. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and at, a, at, a, at a time when you were driving around in IROX, if you had a lot of money, right? <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. I mean, e- even though, the, you know, if there's a law that says no pimps, that, that's not going to have o- organized crime just like, you know, pack their bags and go home. <laughs> that's not how that works. Yeah, I lived in the uh, the harbor area. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of, sh- Hamburg's a huge shipping hub. And just, I could hear also, you know, 20 different languages on the subway every mm-hmm. day. But if I heard Russian, I just kind of mm-hmm. got small yeah. and went over to the side. What are, you, what are you doing here? Yeah, I, I've been to Hamburg a couple of times and stayed down at the Hamburg Hafen Hotel down at the harbor. And uh, it's a fascinating city, but you can walk right into the red light district. And really, even other cities that are, don't really have legalized prostitution in Germany, I think Aachen does not. But there, the, there's, was when I was there a long time ago, um, there was a lot of prostitution around there. I think it was just sort of uh, allowed. And these women are probably all Central and Eastern European, or not all, but but many are. In Hamburg, they could advertise in the local newspapers. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I remember walking down the street in Hamburg and, you know, just having women come up and start talking to you. And I, re- I remember at first, I mean, you know, I was a young, younger man, and I was just like, you know, what's going on here? And then you put it together pretty quickly. It's like they're not zombies. They're uh, <laughs> they're they're after you for another reason. Yeah, and, and they're not supposed to approach Johns. They're supposed to stand against the walls right. if they're not inside a brothel. Right. A buddy of mine told me, he says, easiest way to get rid of them is say you don't have any money. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And so – I tried that one night when one approached me and she started cussing me out for being out and about without any money on me. <laughs> yeah, right. In Hamburg specifically and in other places, uh, I've been in lots and lots of places in Europe, you see the the women walking with the men up to the ATMs, you know, that are on the street. And it's like, you don't have any money? Oh, no problem. Uh, we would just go to this ATM. And it's a rough thing. And, and as a male, I'm, I'm glad you sort of addressed that earlier because I don't really know how to bring that up. It's like, yeah, you know, this wouldn't happen if people didn't have this sort of raw dismissiveness of, of, of it as a crime. My ex-wife worked in um, for a local entertainment newspaper and a Christian rapper had come over to Germany and his record label person asked me to take him down. I think it's called Friedrichstrasse mm-hmm. is where the um, kind of like the the storefronts like they have in Amsterdam. Okay. Um, and, no, Herbertstrasse, that's what it's called. And I said, I don't want to go there. And they have like these huge wooden gates what? there. Oh, you're t- yes. Where, where, I, the, where they have women yeah, in the, oh, yeah. in the, I've, in the, I've, in the I've actually, I've, uh, I've walked right, right there. Yeah, and, they, they have a wooden gates and supposedly no women are allowed. Right. I've just read about it. And so uh, I, I walked through with them and it yeah. was just one of the most horrible experiences yeah. ever. I've seen something similar in Amsterdam where the, the women are behind the glass and, and it's very commercial or i mean what else do you say it's retail and um you know as a younger frankly as a younger man i was less bothered by it than i am now because uh, you know i was just less informed and now you you see because you think women are there of their own absolutely absolutely you know you can tell yourself that but the information is out there that they aren't in, in a large degree and even if they are it's because of really bad circumstances that are almost as horrific as being kidnapped off the street yeah as we're talking it's just a couple of days after the super bowl and i remember over the past several years they have 
had PSAs about human trafficking around the Super Bowl, but I really didn't hear them this year. Yeah, I read some stuff about it. I support a a, a group called Vets for Child Rescue, and and it's uh, American veterans that that are involved in like child rescue. And they had a bunch of stuff before the Super Bowl just online about how it's not a good time for a lot of people because of the prostitution around the Super Bowl is is pretty massive. There's a lot of money, you know, and people there partying. So our particular bad guy in this is an American named Ken Cage, and he seems to be just kind of your Southern California power broker in real estate and the entertainment industry, but he has much more horrible, darker tastes. Yeah, right. He is a little bit patterned off of Jeff Epstein, but not so much, you know, not a lot of the specifics. Bald and short. Bald and short. a money guy. Yeah, and he lives this sort of family life, which was just me sort of making this point. It's that these people are able to be so callous about others. But, you know, he's a family man that loves his daughters and his son and his wife, but leads this double life, not just as a leader of the consortium, but also as someone that goes out and and picks people for his own satisfaction. And you mentioned how sometimes women are the groomers Mm -hmm. and uh, recruiters that bring women into this horrible system. And in this case, we have a psychologist named Dr. Claudia Riesling. Yeah. Well, there was a few reasons. Narratively, I needed to have these women go on this journey where Court is able to, I want to say, be one step behind, but he's not always one step behind. Sometimes, you know, he's have positive and negative impacts, you know, right in the thick of it. This pipeline system is where the women are taken or hired or whatever, and then put in this degrading series of of dungeons, these way stations, is for their psychological reprogramming. And I read some things about this and then about how it's explained to them that, you know, their future is so bright because they can make so much money and they can have so much connections and and whatever. And the the things that they will be asked to do are insignificant in comparison to the the bounty they will receive with with this new life, which is complete baloney. But, you know, there's even lines in there about how, you know, the, the Americans involved, Dr. Riesling and Ken Cage, just think that every European girl wants to come to California. And that's the dream come true. And, and Romanian girl is like, I'm totally happy at home. And it's sort of an American thing. It was important to me, again, not to soapbox it, but but there's so much sex trafficking in the United States, and one-third of the victims, they say, are from out of the United States. So this does happen. And it was important for me that this wasn't just, you know, swarthy, evil villains twiddling their, their mustache in some far-off land or whatever. This some Mediterranean type. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's there, and, and as, as there are, you know, wealthy Italians and, and all these other things. But right here in the U.S. of A., we're, we're just as guilty. Then there's a South African mercenary named Jocko, and uh, I just heard him saying South African (laughs) all (laughs) along the way. Yeah, I don't want to go Lethal Weapon 2 with all my um, villains, but uh, it doesn't get much better than... That was Lethal Weapon 2, right? I can't remember. uh, We'll we'll both watch it tonight. That was the late 80s when making apartheid South Africans villains was just easy money. You know, they, they spoke great English and... You know, they had the accents and you can make them super bad. So they were the bad guys in a lot of Hollywood movies at that time. But Jocko, he's a South African. He's the villain. He's the heavy. He's the head of security for the consortium. And he has a very personal interest in the gray man because of the lore of the gray man and him thinking that this could be his opportunity to not have the boring job of assassinating prostitutes, but have the exciting job of going after this quarry. Because he believes himself to be the equal. Yeah, absolutely. He does. Yeah, yeah. And then we have the personal security detail that's headed up by Sean Hall, who's a former SEAL. 
So this American former SEAL runs the security detail, the, just the personal close protections detail of Ken Cage, who is this billionaire. And I wanted to make Hall not sympathetic, but at the same time, he's not cut from the same cloth. He's more of a enabler or goes along with things, thinks they're wrong, but goes along with them. And, and that's part of all criminal activity, too. There's, there's the people that let things happen or who benefit from it in tangible ways, but say, well, they're not part of the crime, you know. And so he was kind of an interesting guy to me. And I, and I wanted a showdown with him and court late in the story where they talk about, you know, the paths that they've gone down to find themselves where they are. And Sean Hall thinks he's pretty similar to the gray man. And the gray man doesn't feel like he's similar at all to somebody like Hall. You probably speak with a lot of people that are in special forces and special operations around the world. And the horrible fact is that some of them do turn rogue after they do their service. It does happen. And anyone who says that anyone that's worn the the uniform is beyond reproach is just wrong. The United Arab Emirates hired some American special forces guys to do an assassination in Yemen. And everybody's very open about it. And the assassination involved planting a bomb on the outside of an office that was supposed to kill everybody in the building because they were trying to kill one guy. And and there's drone footage of this. And these are Americans. And it is a thing that people who wore the uniform turn bad sometimes, unfortunately. And there's also veterans in this story who are, are very much heroes as well. But I want to be unflinching in my writing, and if I see things out there in the real world that fascinate me, even if it goes against conventions, uh, I'd like to put it in there. Now, there's a refrain that goes through the book, hope is not a strategy. Yeah, I heard somebody just say that at a firearm school I was at once, and uh, it's always stuck in my head, and I've always thought about using that. Hope is not a strategy, because it's a bit of a joke when you think about it, because these stories have to be bigger than life, and the hero's feats have to be amazing. And so, you know, there's a lot of hope anytime you, you know, leap across two buildings to catch on to a a laundry line to swing down after somebody, you know, it's like, yeah, hope might not be your strategy, but that was, there was nothing but hope there. The novelist Ann Patchett, I talked to her once and she said that hope is a lie. Hope is a lie. (laughs) And Mm. I asked, well, then what do you call like anticipating a positive outcome? There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Now, there's a big scuba scene in the book, and I saw on Facebook recently that you were scuba diving down mm-hmm. in the, the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Is Court going to be doing more scuba adventures since it's easier on the knees? It is easier on the knees. That's true. I just love it. And last year in January, before I wrote this book, I did a lot of diving in the Bahamas. And I, I did go back this year and got on the same dive boat and did another week down there just diving all day. I like it a lot. I definitely don't want to overuse it. You know, I don't want to make it like Kurt Russell, right? I can't remember. No, there was, yeah, there was some uh, sequest or something like that. It was like a TV show from like the 60s where sort of everything, it's it's almost like having Aquaman, you know, as as your hero. Things have to be very specific for Aquaman to be able to help. So I I don't want to overuse it. But, you know, in the last book, I had taken a stunt driving course at stunt driving school and I had that in the the book. And this one was scuba diving because I did the diving last year. He will do more diving. He's done a little bit in the past. And I've, I've been diving for 10 years, but not as much as I've done in the last couple of years. So it's very interesting to me. And you, and you can come up with a lot of cool scenarios, but I definitely don't want to like overplay that hand. 
But it must be great to have a lot of your interest be tax deductible for research. It's absolutely tax deductible. I'm the proudest moment of my life was when I deducted body armor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, I felt like I'd I'd arrived in life. Yeah, some of the things that I do research wise, I don't really like. I just feel like I have to do them. But you gravitate towards the thing that's like, oh, that's fun, or that sounds like fun. I've been offered so many opportunities to parachute with people, and there's no way I will ever do that. I'm the guy that doesn't screw the mayonnaise jar on all the way, you know, and, and things like flying planes and jumping out of planes and stuff like that. It just seems like I would be the, the guy that'd be like, well, he didn't have that buckle the way he was supposed to. So <laughs> scuba diving, there's some danger to it. But at the same time, you know, if you, if you do the same thing the same way every time, it's pretty safe. You normally drop a lot of brand names when it comes to weapons and tactical gear and such. But in this one, you named these high-dollar stereo speakers Bacchus and Mula. Uh, so have you ever actually heard those in action? No, I haven't. God, I would love to. No, I did research on like what would a billionaire have as his sort of home theater. $500,000 yeah, speakers. That, and, and I found these for like half a million dollars. And you know, I read this product sheets on it and then like reviews. And I was just like, I can't even imagine what that sound would be like. I couldn't tell the difference between $500 speakers and $5,000. you are in the industry, so you probably would, would I'd never, that. I'd never heard of them before. You never heard of them? Yeah, I bet they're all handmade and hand, you know, carved out of a single piece of wood. And who uh, No, these are like huge aluminum installations. Oh, aluminum. Yeah, they, they, they did, or they were painted silver, but oh, wow. they... Uh, yeah, I remember seeing pictures of them. I just, they, it's been a while. Almost like room height. Uh-huh. They were huge. Yeah, well, he has the money for it. And that's just a simple way of, of showing you the wealth of this guy. Now, what other writing projects do you have coming up? Doing something else with Rip Rawlings? I'm definitely going to do another book with Rip. The second book in our uh, Red Metal was the first. We want to do one that's in Asia. They take a long time to write. We're still talking to the publisher about, you know, how it would look and when it would come out and that sort of thing. Rip's writing other books. I'm writing a 10th Gray Man book right now. And we will do another Red Metal. We both want to, and we both have a bunch of ideas. It's going to be a kind of a scheduling thing. I also recently wrote an original audio drama that Audible is is recording, I think in May, and it'll be out later this year. It's called Armored. I worked on that for off and on for two or three years. And it's one of these things kind of new in the industry. It's not an audio book. They actually, it's like an old time radio play. They, they hire actors basically from the New York theater community because that's where Audible is up in New Jersey. And they have sound effects and music and all that sort of stuff. So that's going to be my next thing to come out after one minute out. So how was it writing for language only, essentially. It was tough. I mean, you realize the limitations and then just find ways around them. I think my first draft, I was using like, you know, the narrator come in and be like, okay, here's what you see, you know, and as I read it, I was like, that's just not going to sound good. So I created a whole another character who's throughout the story relaying events that have happened. And then this person who you think is only going to, you know, be talking about what happened catches up to what's happening and is involved in, in the last act. And I think it works pretty well. They were they were very happy with it. So I can't wait to hear it. What's the approximate runtime on that? I was just in uh, New York at Audible Studios two weeks ago, and they gave me several scripts to read that, of others that had been produced. Uh, Joe Hill did one, or, or more than one, um, Stephen King's son. And there was a series of tie-in books to the aliens where they hired an actress who sounds exactly like Sigourney Weaver. It's amazing to me. I was talking to them, but I was like, how did you do that? You know, what I turned in was 60,000 words, and they said they thought it'd be about seven hours, six or seven hours. Wow. So, yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit longer than the ones that I've listened to. But I said, I think that'll dovetail nicely with my fan base who's been reading me write 200,000 word Clancy books, 220,000 word Red Metal, and 160,000 word Gray Man. I've, I write big stories. Yeah, Ed. 
oh man, you wear me out. <laughs> I like a nice 80,000 page novel. Right. Because you, you, you read 25 books a month probably. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah. But uh, you know, I do have people say you need to write shorter. And I always say, do you think you read the average number of books? They're like, no, I read so much more than average. I'm like, right. But Somebody that's dropping $30 on a book, you know, I feel like wants a story. And, and also it's the Clancy effect. I worked with Tom Clancy for three years before he died and continued the Jack Ryan series after he died. And somehow, magically, my books got bigger <laughs> during that time. Well, and if you sell enough books, your publisher is going to be okay with something more than 320 pages. Yeah, they've been very happy and they haven't edited me down for length, you know, to get fewer pages in there. On the other hand, I have friends who are thriller writers who write 90,000 word books and we make the same money. You know, it's, I'm, I, it, it's a self-inflicted wound uh, that I've created these longer books. It's almost like putting more people in the band. Yeah, exactly. You got to pay them more. I'm, I'm sort of the MC hammer of the thriller world is what you're, what you're saying. You know, it's just the way that I like to tell stories and I always estimate them being about 125 to 140 and then about 150. I'm like, I've still got another 15,000 words to go. So I go where the story takes me. Value for money. Yeah, hope, yeah, that's what I want people to see it as, yeah. Now, also I saw on Facebook that you have another big project coming up a, l- a little bit later this year. Congratulations, you Thank just got you engaged. Thank you very much. I just got engaged two weeks ago. I was up in New York, funny story, to Audible Studios, and then at Berkeley, my publisher up there. So I was just up there for work for three days, and I asked my girlfriend if she would, you know, a couple weeks before, if she'd come up to New York just for one night and have dinner with my agent and his wife. We planned on that, and the day before, I was very careful to remember to bring the ring because I was paranoid I was going to forget the ring. And I, I remember the ring, and my sister-in-law called me, and she's like, did you remember the ring? And I remembered the ring, but I found out about 12 hours before Allison was to get on the plane that I'd forgotten to book her ticket, her plane ticket to New York. <laughs> and I, you know, with, with sweaty hands, went on kayak.com, and I'm like, I guess if it's five grand to fly her up here tomorrow, I've got to, I've got to do it. I did pay a dummy tax for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, yeah, it's just like me to remember the ring and forget the girl. But, but uh, yeah, we got engaged in Central Park and we're getting married in September. Well, there goes that audible money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there goes a lot of money. Right. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for coming by. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's always great. Thanks, Stephen. Mark Greeny is the author of One Minute Out, the ninth installment of the Gray Man series, which is published by Berkeley. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.